book of Revelation, chapter 3, from verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and none shall shut, and that shutteth and none openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee a door opened which none can shut that thou hast a little power, and didst keep my word, and didst not deny my name. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan, of them that say that they are Jews, and they are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou didst keep the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and have gotten riches and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art the wretched one and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me Gold refined by fire, that thou mayest become rich, and white garments, that thou mayest clothe thyself, and that the shame of thy nakedness be not made manifest. And I salve to anoint thine eyes, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I reprove and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He that overcometh, 
I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. <laughs> Well, now this evening, we come to the last of these studies on the matter of overcoming. You will remember that last week we spoke about overcoming being somehow related to the testimony of Jesus or the golden lampstand. We look carefully through the book of Revelation we find that the thing that runs right the way through it is this golden lampstand or this testimony of Jesus. And the uh, fact that somehow or other the Lord is judging everything in relation to our holding of that testimony. And then we spoke last week about the characteristics of that lampstand. We saw the lampstand, we looked at it from different angles, there are about five particular things uh, really to do with that lampstand which for us um, represent the character of the overcomer or the characteristics if you like that God looks for in us that we might be those who overcome and finally uh, sit down in the throne of God. And those characteristics are these. It is made of pure gold. The second one, it is beaten work. The third characteristic is it is all made out of one piece. The fourth characteristic, there is pure olive oil within it. And the fifth characteristic is that it is to burn continually. The first characteristic, pure gold, no other metal, no other material, pure gold. And that speaks to us, it is a symbol of the nature and character and life of Christ. That is one of the characteristics God looks for is pure gold in us. And the second thing, beaten work, we saw that stood for discipline, shaping, uh, being molded, if you like. Uh, it's hammered work, actually, blow on blow, uh, until this uh, lampstand is fashioned complete, all out of one piece. It's hammered, turned work. That is, as it's turned, it's continually hammered. And uh, if you've seen a bathsmith or coppersmith in the East, you will see one man turning the thing and two or three hammering, terrible noise, as they hammer all the time, blow on blow, gradually fashioning it into what it should be. Discipline. There can be no holding of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ without the spi a spirit of discipline until we're really prepared for self-control, until we're really prepared to come under the government of God, 
until we're prepared to be a disciple. Now, God's plan is not to make so many believers, nor to beget so many children, but to obtain disciples. And disciples are those who are disciplined. That's all. It's quite as simple as that. It's all of one piece. That is, it is the one Lord Jesus Christ in us all. Well, we don't have to say too much about that. But this overcoming is all to do with maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And pure olive oil. Um, that is, the whole point of the lamp stand is that it holds seven lamps. And in those lamps is pure olive oil. And that again speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's all important in the matter of overcoming. If you and I are strangers to the ministry uh, of the Holy Spirit, then we are of necessity alienated from any possibility of overcoming. For overcoming has an essential and vital relationship to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's pure olive oil, no mixture, no mixture at all, and there is no subject upon which the enemy brings in mixture more than the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to be so uncompromising in this matter of standing against anything which is mixture. The, uh, it is pure olive oil, nothing adulterated, nothing alien introduced, nothing that is a mixture of soul and spirit. But it's got to be pure olive oil, absolutely pure, the finest of the fine. And then, of course, it is to burn continually. And I think this is overlooked so often, this fifth characteristic. And people talk about the beauty of the lampstand and the gold of the lampstand and the beaten work of the lampstand and the unity of the lampstand and the oil in the lampstand, but very few people ever talk about the light. But the whole point of the lampstand is that it gives light. It stood in the uh, holy place to throw light, as it were, upon the whole holy place, to flood it with light. It always reminds me of that word, in thy light we shall see light. There is the light that lightens everything, so we see what's there. You can't understand what the golden altar, altar really is, or where it is, or what it means, or what it's up to, what it's doing, what is being done on it, what's being offered on it, without the light of the, of, of the, of the uh, lampstand. How can you see where the showbread is, the table with the showbread, for feeding, the bread of life, for sustenance, if there's no light? You must have light so that you can see where the table is and see the bread laid upon the table, the, the bread of his presence, the, the showbread. We need light. We need light. In his light, we see light. And this lampstand is just for that. It's to flood things with light. And when I think of those seven golden lampstands, God wasn't putting around him objects of art, sort of um, beautiful things surrounding himself, right round in a circle, seven beautiful golden lampstands, intricately worked, beautifully wrought, Perfect in every way, with no light. The whole idea is that they might flood 
each of their localities, each of their places where they are with light. And who is the light if it is not Jesus Christ? It is to be ablaze with the glory of God. Now, of course, I must be very careful here and change the figure when changing the figure. But I like to think of it like the old thorn bush, ablaze with the fire of God. Of course, it's a little bit different, this beautiful golden lampstand. A little bit different to the old dried up thorn bush. But nevertheless, the whole thought is it's the fire that matters. That fire that, that, that is the very, very sign, the very evidence of the presence of the Almighty, the living God. That's the thing. You know, Israel, no wonder Israel has taken this symbol of the lampstand or the menorah as the symbol of its nationhood. They're not wrong, the rabbis are not wrong to select from all the various pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and temple, this particular um, furniture, this piece of furniture, as the thing that symbolizes the very vocation of Israel, the very vocation of the covenant people of God, the chosen people of God. What was their vocation? Oh, to have the very nature of God in them. Yes, we understand that. Yes, not only that, to be a disciplined people under the government of God, under the control of God. We know that. More than that, that they should be a people absolutely united in love with one another by the very life of God. And yes, we know that. That they should be a people who know the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we know that. But their real vocation was that they should be a lamp as we sometimes sing, a burnished gold. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1. That they should be a lamp that burns to the end of the earth. And that was the whole thought. Flooding a darkened world with light. So that men who are blind, men who are darkened in their minds, alienated from God, should be able to see somehow a light in their darkness. That's the whole point of Israel's nationhood. That she should become a vessel by which God would reveal himself and show himself as it were a center of light, radiating light out to the ends of the earth. They failed in this task, in this vocation. They fell short of it. But oh, we could say, the same about the church. Surely when the lampstand is removed, does it not really mean that somehow or other the whole point of it has gone? The whole point of the church. We're playing at churches then. We've just got the order. We've got the technique. We've got the doctrine. We've got all other kinds of things, but we haven't got the real vocation. We're, 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 we're not uh, fulfilling the purpose for which we're designed. What is it that the very light of the world might be innocent, shining through us? Oh, there's so much more that we could say about this matter. Well, what can we say in summing up these few evenings, this vast subject, this complex subject? I think we can say this, that overcoming is therefore, firstly, a matter of vital, experimental relationship to Christ. I'll say that again. 
overcoming is firstly a matter of vital living, experimental, practical relationship to Christ, to the one who is the overcomer. That's the point. Overcoming is not that you in yourself overcome, that you screw up all your resources, that somehow or other you as a kind of little Christian unit do something. No, it is rather that in relationship to the one who is the victor, the one who is the overcomer, you overcome. It's a matter of a vital experimental relationship to Christ himself. Now let's look at a few scriptures and see if that's not so. This evening we range over uh, quite a few um, parts of the New Testament. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye may have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now then, someone might well say to me, who isn't one of these soft-soaked Christians, who takes everything in gullibly, someone of you might say to me, cold comfort. Especially if you've got liberal or modernistic tendencies. You may well say to me, cold comfort. In the world ye shall have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's cold comfort, isn't it? He's up there. We're down here. He's glorified. We are not. He is in the place of all peace. We are not. Ah, just wait. What does he say? In me ye may have peace. Then he says, in the world ye shall have tribulation. What a paradox. In Christ, peace in the world, tribulation. So we Christians are like spiritual schizophrenics. On the one side, we're in, we're in trouble all the time. On the other side, we're in glory all the time. On the one side, we've got one foot all the time in unrest, tribulation, persecution, suffering, travel. On the other side, we've got joy unspeakable, peace that passes all understanding, life more abundant. Isn't it extraordinary? Now, when the Lord said, be of good cheer, he meant just that, be of good cheer. Don't groan. Don't murmur. Why, if your reaction is cold comforts because you haven't seen it, if once you see what this means, you will be of good cheer. For what he means is this, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And you see, you're in me. You're with me. Because I've overcome, you've overcome. It's as simple as that. The Lord's really saying, look here, I've overcome, therefore you've overcome. Be of good cheer. You're going to have a rough time. You're going to have a rough time. The devil's going to be right on your tail. But don't you worry. Just as the man-child was caught up to heaven, so what there is of God in you will be preserved and protected by God. Kept by the power of God. Unto what? A living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, well. That's one thing. Now let's have a look at a few more. And see if we can find any further cold comfort for ourselves. There's Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5. Now, after all this talk about overcoming, in Revelation, chapter 5, and verse 5, we read this. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has overcome to open the seals, the book, and the seven seals thereof. Now, isn't it wonderful that right at the very beginning of this book, with all its dreadful horror stories, with all its symbols of darkness, of martyrdom, of suffering, and sometimes the seeming omnipotence of Satan and of evil itself, we are told this, don't weep, don't weep. Even John, who'd seen the risen triumphant Lord in the midst of the seven churches, or, and had heard those words, fear not, I am the first and the last, and I was dead, and I am alive forevermore, I am the living one, and I have the keys of death and hell. He was weeping. He was weeping. He was overcome by the fact that not a person in heaven or on earth or anywhere else was worthy to open the book and to break the seals. And then he saw the little lamb as it had been slain. Take the book and open it and break the seals one after another. Now, isn't it wonderful that right at the beginning of this book we've got the overcomer? First, we're told in relation to the seven churches with all their misery and sin and failure and much else, we're told, fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, and I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. And then, before we're shown these other terrible stories of world history, symbolizing the great battle between Satan and God, why, we are shown first the overcomer himself. Weep not, for the lion of the tribe of Judah hath overcome to open the book and to break the seven seals thereof. It was the little lamb as it had been slain. Let's look at a few more things. Why, then, let's put it this way. We start to go into all this dark and terrible story with the overcomer. And what do we find? We find sometimes that God stands back and says, Come on, Satan, do your worst. Do your worst. Why, in one place, the most extraordinary picture is given. A, the, the sort of lid is taken off. And we see all these martyrs. And they cry out, Lord, Lord, how long? How long? And the Lord says, Put the lid back on. <sighs> it's a most extraordinary picture. He says, Put the lid back on. He says, You just be quiet, all of you. Until your brethren have finished their course, the last of the martyrs. In other words, there are a definite number of martyrs. Maybe some of us will be amongst them to make up the role. But he says, put the lid on. Put the lid on. <laughs> I'm putting it in my own language, but if you look at the very modern one, you'll find it's almost like that. Put the lid on. Well, what a strange way of looking at things. Well, no, the Lord's saying, don't worry, don't worry. Come on, Satan, do your worst. Go and martyr a few more and find out you're just bringing your end nearer. Just go out, give you more rope, do what you want to. And so it's all the way through this. You know, that woman giving birth to a child. Fancy the Lord letting the woman give birth to a child in a place like that, exposed to a great dragon. It's disgraceful. She should have been in the clinic. A spiritual clinic, a heavenly clinic. No, God says, come on, Satan, come on. Swallow up this man-child if you can. Swallow him up if you can. And then when the man-child's caught up, the Lord says to the Satan, come on, get the woman. And then the Lord causes the earth to protect the woman. 
and water to protect her and her seed. It's an amazing story. You see, all the way through, it's the overcomer. In other words, we see first the overcomer, and then we see everyone else overcoming. Why do they overcome? Because of the overcomer. The overcomer's gone forth conquering and to conquer. And because he has ridden forth on the white horse to conquer, conquering and to conquer, then we go right through the book of Revelation and we see everyone else conquering as they trust in him alone. If they trust in themselves, they're defeated. The measure in which they trust in their own resources is the measure they know darkness and defeat and compromise. The measure in which they trust in the Lamb alone is the measure in which they overcome. It's a vital experimental relationship. Why, look at those martyrs. You're not going to tell me that they stood there with some kind of hip hypocrisy, some kind of facade, some kind of veneer and gave their lives? Not so. There was a vital, experimental relationship which meant they could die in faith knowing that they had gained the victory in the end. And so it is right through this book. Well, there we are. Let's look at a few more quickly or our time will have simply all gone. We shall have to have another evening on it. Chapter 17, verse 14. These shall war against the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they also shall overcome that are with him called, chosen and faithful. Now isn't that just the grace of God to insert that? Why we'd all been shouting or should be shouting hallelujah if we'd just read the, uh, the lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. But listen to this word of grace. And they also shall overcome that are with him called, Chosen and faithful. Now, the words also shall overcome are not in the original. So it reads really just like this. These shall war against the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him. They that are with him. It doesn't even call them overcomers. It just says they that are with him. That's overcoming. Are you with him? That's the point. Are you really with the Lamb? No, not with people. Are you with the Lamb? No, not with a teaching. Are you with the Lamb? No, not a conception, even of the purpose and will of God. But are you with the Lamb? Called, chosen, faithful. They're going to overcome. Well, I think that's very, very wonderful. To me it is anyway. I go back a few chapters to chapter 14 and verse 1 and here I find it, it put in another way. Listen to this. Chapter 14, verse 1. And I saw and behold the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now what a strange thing. You've never heard of someone writing their name on your forehead? Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 4, and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. So the city, the people in the city, the people that constitute the city, they've got this name written on their foreheads. The 144,000 that have overcome have got this name written on their foreheads. Now look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God and mine own new name. Why, well, think of that. You're going to have the name of the Father, the name of the city, and the name of the Lamb. 
the new name of the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Now, you know as well as I do that God does not go in for gimmicks. God never goes in for things that are a zap. If you know what that means. Uh, a kind of uh, uh, a substitute. He never goes in for things like that. No, no. When God writes these names on the forehead, what he's really saying is, my character's in these people. My character is in these people. And the very city itself is in them. The transparency of the city's in them. The gold of the city's in them. It's right inside. The name's written on the foreheads. And if you are very careful and a good scholar, and you look right through this book of Revelation, you will find only too clearly that it does not say that everyone has that name written on their forehead. I do not see that every saved person has that name written on their forehead. It doesn't say that. Now that means that these people are consistent with something. They're consistent with their God. They're consistent with the Lamb. They're consistent with his purpose. They're consistent, if you like, with the testimony of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean to say that you're perfect, but it does mean that you, it does mean, however young you are, however failing you are, that you are obedient. You're walking in the night with God. God doesn't say, ha ha, you're not like the Apostle Paul, so you're out. No. He doesn't say, you're not like anyone, you're out. He says, this is what I showed you. This is what I tried to do in you. And you responded, you are an overcomer. Now, isn't that comforting? Because it means that someone who was saved last Sunday could be an overcomer if the Lord came this Saturday. Why? Because they have responded to the light that God has given them. And the Lord says, that's right. They were absolutely true. Called, chosen, and faithful. Now that's the way to look at it. Don't try and think, oh, all those that are right up there, they're the people. No, it's a question of relationship. Why, it's a terrible possibility to have known the Lord quite deeply and then at the end, backslide. Become slothful, lethargic. Our very knowledge can puff us puff us up, so that we become superior and critical and alienated from God. Well, there we are. There are some other scriptures. Look at 1 John, chapter 5, verse 4. Now, we shall look at this verse again in a moment, but listen to this. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And verse 5, And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? What wonderful words. Overcoming is firstly a matter of vital experimental relationship to Christ. Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. Vital, experimental relationship to Christ. You're begotten of him. And who is he that overcometh? 
But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. There. God the Son that believeth. Faith in the triumphant Son of God. Vital experimental relationship. You can lose. A cloud can come over that relationship. I, I don't think you'll ever lose the relationship, but it can cease to be vital. Shadow can come over it. Cloud can come over it. Do you know how? Oh, you say sin. Yes, yes, but I'll put it another way. Through unbelief. <coughs> Just unbelief. You cease to really livingly believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Oh, you say, yes, sir. I know all about that. But it doesn't help me tomorrow morning at work. My boss is an ogre. Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't seem to have any effect on him. Well, I go back to home and it's ghastly. It's terrible there. Jesus, the Son of God, I don't see anything in it. And I have no hope there. Ah, that's it, you see. See, you, you, you would say, I believe in Jesus. But you, you see, you're, you don't really. You have believed and you do believe in one way, and yet you disbelieve in another. Victory, overcoming, is because in the, middle of a, in the midst of a situation you say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God in this situation. And the devil will laugh and laugh and laugh. And all you need do is not take him on, but have a little praise meeting. And just you worship the Lord as the Son of God. And the devil will give you up. He'll say, I'll leave him to his Lord. Can't do anything about it. I'll leave him. Well, now there is just one or two others I would like you to look at. This question of vital experimental relationship. Revelation 2 verse 4. I have this against thee. Thou didst leave thy first love. I ha have this against thee. Thou didst leave thy first love. They were experimental. Vital experimental relationship. You see the Lord's not looking for technique. He's not looking for the theology merely. Yes he is bothered about principles. He is bothered about truth. Make no mistake about that. Pure doctrine. For there is the spirit of truth and there is the spirit of error. God is concerned. But may get clear on this. It's this relationship he looks for. First love. Doesn't that speak of a vital, experimental relationship? That's what overcoming is. It's a question of keeping ourselves in love with him. So. Just keeping in love with him. And that's the thing that finds us all out. Oh, we can talk till the cows come home. About the Bible and about this and about that and about the coming of the Lord. But first love. Look at Colossians chapter 2, 19. Colossians chapter 2, 19. And not holding fast the head from whom all the body being supplied and knit together through... The joints and bands increaseth with the increase of God. How shall we keep in fellowship? How shall we keep together? 
How shall we maintain the unity of the Spirit? Oh, we'll all try to get into a holy huddle. We'll all get nearer to each other. We'll try and sort out our differences on the horizontal uh, level. We'll all be... No, it'll be just one t terrible mess. In fact, here is the most terrible... Here is the most terrible possibility. As we all try to keep together, we can all together go off the rails. That's exactly what's happened with exclusivism. It's exactly what's happened with a number of other things. All kept together and the whole lot go off. Now, that's not the way. How do you keep in fellowship with all the brothers and sisters? How? With the whole family. By holding fast the head. And there it is. Vital, experimental relationship. The way I keep in touch with you is via the head. Now, if I keep my, my relationship to the head absolutely clear, I cannot be out of sorts with you. amazed at the number of people who are out of sorts with one another and yet claim to be in perfect relationship with their head that is extraordinary to me and as the uh, the apostle john puts it and forgive me if i'm blunt but like the apostle paul i feel i ought to say on this if anyone doesn't accept them have nothing to do with them they are liars they are liars it's as simple as that. The Word of God says so. You cannot possibly say you've got a living relationship with the head and be absolutely out of sorts with one another. Talking behind one another's backs. Stabbing one another. Gossiping. Backbiting. Passing on information. Praying for one another. You know that kind of prayer. The kind I mean is you simply annihilate a person's reputation in prayer. You know the godly kind of thing. Lord, you know so-and-so and so-and-so. What a trial they are to us all. Oh, dear Lord, do something in them. We've absolutely annihilated them. Annihilated and liquidated them, in one sense, beautifully. And in the most spiritual manner it's possible to do it. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for one another, but be very, very careful how we pray. For God always lets it come back like a boomerang. What you throw out in prayer, be careful, it doesn't come back and clout you. <laughs> it does. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Oh, I grew the days. Some of the things I used to say to the pastor days ago, uh, years ago, uh, I said things <coughs> to the pastor, and I've heard the same thing said to me and had to swallow. And then I've had at least the humor to smile in when he said, Lord, you never let us get away with anything. And that gives me a certain dread for the future. <laughs> <coughs> Sometimes, for like Jacob, we get away with nothing. We have our Labans, we have our Rachels, we have our Leos. <laughs> They're all there, all around us. And we see ourselves in them so perfectly, mirrored. we don't always recognize it. The Lord lets us get away with nothing. <coughs> but you see, the way to keep in a vital, uh, 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 to overcome in the matter of relationships, of fellowship, of the, of the unity and oneness of Christ, is through holding fast the head.
Now let's get clear on this. If you and I are in a living, clear-cut relationship with the head, holding fast, that's the strong word, it means absolutely laying hold of the head. Not just sort of saying, well, I'm one with him, I'm one with him. But saying, Lord, today I hold fast to you as head. You can be quite sure the Lord by the Spirit will say to you, what about so-and-so? Or so-and-so. We don't have to search. We don't have to go around and sort of raking everything up and out and into the open. All we have to do is to keep hold fast with the head. And the head's intelligence will soon let us know if there's anything wrong. That's the best way to keep short accounts. You say, I feel so sorry for some Christians. They're like the man in Pilgrim's Progress with the muckrake. You know, the crown of gold over his head of glory. And he's raking up the muck all the time. And moaning, saying, poor me, poor me. <laughs> and many of us Christians are just like that, aren't we? We're, what we're trying to do all the time is we're, we're trying to put into action certain spiritual truths the wrong way. Instead of, as dear brother Reese always used to say, doing it by vertically, we do it horizontally. Instead of trying to solve situations vertically through the phone, we do it horizontally. And we get into a terrible mess. And there's no matter in which we can get into a bigger mess than the matter of fellowship. Why, you know... We have to be honest with one another, don't we? But you all know the kind of thing when a person comes to you and says, I want to say sorry to you. And you are quite taken back. And they start. I'm very sorry. I had a very bad time about you. But you are so big-headed that you entirely got me down. But as I prayed about it, the Lord spoke to me, and I'm awfully sorry that I thought these things. Now, that was a very, very sweet and spiritual way of just giving one a right hand. <laughs> That's all. It's so perfectly spiritual that people get away with it. And what you've done is you're laid right out. You see, when we get before God and God deals with us, when we hold fast the head, the very way we put things right, is uh, different. Now, you've all heard the scripture, which is the most one of the most misquoted scriptures. Well, I see, not about misquoted, but it's quoted as it's written. But the spirit of it is entirely misinterpreted. And that, of course, is speaking truth in love. You know the kind of thing you get. I feel I ought to speak truth in love. And what you get is truth without any love at all. Now, that's not overcoming. Overcoming is when God so melts our hearts because of our living relationship with him that when it comes to handling one another, we use a velvet glove. And when it comes to handling ourselves, an iron fist. Well, may God just help us in these things. Now, coming out of that... If overcoming is firstly a matter of vital, experimental relationship to Christ, then secondly, coming out of that, it is a matter of becoming Christ-like. It's as simple as that. Overcoming is simply becoming Christ-like, or lamb-like. I remember dear brother Oliphant, 
He used to speak so much about la being like the lamb. Lamb-like. Why, the very last message he ever gave before he died was in this place. And if, for those of you who remember it, it was on becoming like the lamb. Of course, there was no man more like the lamb. In many ways, lamb-like. Now, overcoming is just that. Not to become lion-like, but lamb-like. Well, and how do we become lamb-like? We become Christ-like. We become like the lamb through union with him. Union with him. In other words, I've got to come into the lamb and the lamb's got to come into me. Now, how is it possible for this union to effectively take? Now, we all know that, it, that there's a sense of absolutely right sense of saying that when we're born of God, the union's taken place. But how do we come into it in practice? There are, there's a twofold way by which alone any man or woman can come into this union practically. By the cross and by the Spirit. And you cannot divorce the two. By the cross and by the Spirit. That's the only way you and I can come into this. Overcoming is simply that whereas you begin with a vital experimental relationship to Christ, then you become conformed to his image. You become lamb-like. Now I say this to my own heart. You know me well. You know how unlamb-like I am. And I know how unlamb-like you are. We all know each other. And that's the whole problem of the church when we know each other so well. And so often... Oh, we get sort of blocked by what we see of flesh instead of what we see of Christ crucified. It's right what the Apostle Paul said, I determine not to know anything about him. Save Jesus Christ in him. It's got to be a determination. Otherwise you'll come unstuck. Oh, you come in and you start off by saying, oh, they're all so lovely. But after a while, you're soon blocked by the flesh and the blood that you see. Well, now, how is this possible? Well, look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Such a well-known verse. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him, that is the devil, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Now, there you've got it. You've got it. How does this union take place? Through nothing less than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Through the complete and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. By his blood, he has completely justified us. He's given us a standing with God. Who shall accuse us? Who shall condemn us? It's God who has justified us. Now that's tremendous. Every time the devil comes to you, you can say it's under the blood of the Lamb. And I won't discuss it. I will not discuss it. It's under the blood of the Lamb. Or you can, you can take your stand on the finished work of Jesus Christ and know that you're safe. If you take your stand on anything else, your devotion, your faithfulness, your love, you'll come unstuck. The devil will work unceasingly till perhaps in a moment of illness or some other weariness, you can't pray. And then he'll whisper in your ear, <laughs> you're backsliding. 
Don't trust yourself. Oh, I don't mean don't pray. What I mean is don't trust your prayer. Don't trust in your devotion. Don't trust in your faithfulness. Trust in him alone. That's the way through. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And listen, the word of their testimony. What's that? This is the word of their testimony. Jesus Christ, he is Lord. The word of their testimony. Jesus Christ, he is the life. That's the word of your testimony. And can you say this? Jesus Christ, he is my life. Tonight. That's the word of your testimony. You've overcome. The devil doesn't know what to do. If you will only say, Lord, please be my life. Please, Lord, please. The devil say, oh, oh, oh. got him. I've got her. Or if you say, oh, Lord, please give me power. Now, there's nothing wrong in asking for the Lord says you have not because he asked not. But the moment it goes over to the word of your testimony, then the devil's defeated. The moment you say, thank you, Lord, you are my power in this situation. I don't feel it, but you are my power in this situation. That moment the devil's broken. The moment you say, Lord, you are my love. That moment the devil is broken. The moment you say, Lord, you are my life. That moment the devil's broken. All the times I've been as dead as doornails, probably you've known it. And I just said to the Lord, Lord, thank you, you are my life. And he's become my life. People always say, if you happen to smile rather a lot, oh, you're such a happy person. But if you know how to, to, to just give a word of your testimony all the time, now this doesn't mean to the unsaved. They overcame him. Sometimes we have to be a little careful of the word about testimony. But when it's the enemy, we can always be safe. Never sort of start saying big things. Never say, oh, I'm standing. Because the devil will say, huh. And you'll be knocked out. Just be careful. Let it be the word of your testament. In other words, Jesus Christ, he is Lord. I feel awful. But he's Lord. Everything's upside down. He's Lord. That's the word of your testament. What can the devil do about that? Say, dig it in a bit more. And then what do you say? He is Lord. So the devil says, dig it in a bit more. Add a bit of darkness. Throw in an insinuation or two. Bring back one of the closest relations in an irritable mood. Come on, stoke it up. And still the saint says, Lord, it's awful, but you are Lord above all this. What can the devil do? He's defeated. Why? Because it is an unassailable fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you never, has it never occurred to you? That whether you say it or not, it's a fact. It's as simple as that. Why well, you might go home tonight, take a gun and shoot yourself. <laughs> but it doesn't make any difference to the fact that he's Lord. You've been defeated, but he is Lord. So don't think that when you sit there with your mouth shut, that makes a difference. Oh, he's not Lord. The devil's got the, the heyday on this. He's making it. It's a field day for the devil because I'm not saying anything. Yes, it is a field day in your life. You're the one that's miserable. And sometimes, unfortunately, there can be almost a hundred of us miserable. And then, of course, the whole atmosphere is like a wet, damp, foggy morning. 
And everyone says, oh, I don't know what's wrong. Of course we all know what's wrong. The devil's got a field day in all of us. That's all. But it, the fact is, up there, or right here, right here, just in another dimension, he is Lord. There's absolute glory all around us. The angels are praising, the, the, the saints that have, that have passed over, they're absolutely full of worship. It's all around us. And they're saying, poor things. Look at them. They seem to think that it's dark up here, but it isn't. You see, it's an unassailable fact. These are facts we're dealing with. The fact that Jesus Christ died is a fact. The fact that he rose again is a fact. It's a fact. can't get away from it. That he's coming, that he's king. These things are absolutely unassailable as far as Satan is concerned. So, may I say this? The devil never bothers to attack, attack them. What he does is he undermines your faith. Do you know what the devil attacks? Not the fact. This is what most of us think. We think he's, the devil's attacking the fact. He doesn't. The devil knows it's true. He is the greatest believer in these facts. <laughs> he knows them. What he attacks is your faith in the facts. Now, if you could get this clear, suddenly, your faith will suddenly fall into focus. The whole thing will fall into You'll say, aha, what a fool I am. I thought the devil was trying to shake the throne of God. Of course, he's not doing anything of the kind. He's trying to shake my faith in the throne of God. He's whispering things at me all the time, saying, now, now, now. No, good, no. So the word of your testimony is the way we overcome. The moment you say the throne of God is forever and ever here in this situation, the moment you say he's Lord, or he's life, or he's love, or he's power, he is my life, he is my power, he is our power, our life, that moment the thing breaks. Now, haven't we found that in some prayer meetings? When suddenly someone started to praise, over some, and then another, and then another, and the whole atmosphere's broken. Started off as dead as a doornail, and ended up in glory. Why, every single time I can remember in the years we've been together that we've had a time of glory, it has been through that starting up the word of our testimony. The blood and the word of our testimony. And the other thing is, love not their lives even unto death. Now, this is the other side of the cross. That's the thing we don't like. Now, where is the devil's ground? In our old man, isn't it? Our old nature. That's the, our old flesh life. So if the devil can just work there, we are done. Now, why some of us don't overcome is not because of the blood, nor because of the word of our testimony, but because we won't let go our lives. We won't let them go where they belong, on the cross. We've been crucified with Christ. Now, when a person is prepared to take that ground, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When I take that ground, then we, the devil's broken. Or, put it another way, I've overcome. When you think of the moods that we're all subject to, the ups and the downs, so much of it goes back to our flesh life, doesn't it? Why, I suppose when we really look at it, we'll find that it's not just willful sinning. Most of us would not willfully 
It's the old incurable self-life. That's the trouble. You know the kind of thing. <laughs> it's all that for him talking up there. It's the old self-life. Doesn't like it. We overcome when we let our lives go. Now you've got one other scripture too in connection with this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye are of God, my little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now look at those verbs, look at the tenses. Now watch again. Ye are of God. Ye are of God. That's present. Whatever you feel. My little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Ye have overcome because greater is he. Oh, if you and I could only experimentally know Christ within by the Spirit. If we could know that blessed release of the, of the indwelling Christ, then we would know what overcoming is. Because I cannot face the devil myself, and he, and he knows that. Just let him get me out, draw me out to face him, to argue with him, to talk with him, to get into a slanging match, even to pray against him in a railing kind of way and accuse me. And the devil knows just what he'll do. That's what he wants. But let me hide in the fact that Christ is my life. Let me take the ground that I've been crucified with Christ and that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I've overcome. I have overcome. The moment I take that, I've overcome. The battle's won. Well, we have only ten more minutes. So let's just look at a few more of these things. Then we have said that it is a matter of becoming Christ-like, or lamb-like. That is, the serpent's got to be got out of us. Now, most of us do not like to think that the serpent might be in us. But, believe me, the poison of that serpent is in our old flesh life. Whether it's dressed up in Christian robes and Christian phrases or not, it's the serpent. We've got to have the serpent crucified and the lamb released. Now, this means that by progressively partaking of Christ, As we progressively partake of him, so we overcome. He becomes our all in all. Now that's why it says in Colossians 3 something about all and in all. Now overcome, the surest mark by which we can know that a person is overcoming is that there's more of Christ in them now than there was last year. Now you cannot always tell that, but others can. There's more of the lamb there. Why? Because they're partaking. Now, just in case someone thinks, now, where are these ideas coming from? Right, let's have a look. Revelation chapter 14, verse 4 and 5. 
Now, you, we've already read verse 1. These people with the name of God written in their forehead. These are they that were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were purchased from among men to be the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no lie. They are without blemish. Progressively partakers of the Lamb. Like Him. Uncompromising. Self-sacrificing. Holy. True. Devoted. Faithful. Obedient. It's all there, isn't it? In other words, to be a progressive partaker, someone says to me, well, how am I a progressive partaker? Well, I'll tell you. When you follow him utterly. Let me put it another way. When you are obedient. Every time you trust and obey, you partake of the Lord. Did you know that? That little issue in your life, perhaps it's to do with what you look on, watch on television or listen to on the radio, or what you read, or the places you go, or the clothes you wear, or something else. Some little small thing which really is quite outside and external. And you think, oh, what a silly little thing. There's no bother about that. There's nothing to do with the spiritual life. Nothing to do with my salvation. You'll be very surprised how much uh, hinges on that. And when you say yes to the Lord, suddenly there's more of the Lord. You followed him further. Well, there is again 1 John chapter 5, another verse. We've read it already, but again, let's read it. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I wonder whether you've ever realized that you cannot be obedient until you've got faith. Have you ever realized that? If you've got a battle over obedience, it's because you haven't got faith. You see, every time... When, well, let's put it like this. When God said to Abraham, get out, if he'd been disobedient, it was because... Why? Well, generally speaking, it would have been because he thought, oh, where am I going? I mean, I must, I must know where I'm going. He couldn't believe that he could go out and not know. But it says, by faith, Abraham went out, not knowing whither. By faith, he obeyed. The only way you can obey. You see, so often, when the Lord says, now look, I want you to do so and so, we have a battle. And why have we got that battle? I'll tell you why we've got the battle. We believe that somehow or other the Lord's going to make us sort of narrow-minded, old, lifeless, dry sticks. Oh, if the Lord does that with me, I shall become just like all of them. Sort of sallow and dry. And I don't want to. As if somehow or other our present personality is so fetching and so winsome and so full that it's worth hanging on to. Oh, if only we knew. We're deceived, of course. 
But if we, if we had faith to believe that God was wanting to do something better in us, to make us somehow more attractive, more winsome, more Christ-like, more beautiful, so that the beauty of the Lord our God was more manifestly upon us, we'd go forward. You see, it's faith. You see, every time God says, I want to take that, we say, oh... Life will be so joyless, so drab, so mean without that. But really, you give it, and you'll have the joy that you've not had before. Compensates more than compensates. Well, we won't stay with that point, but uh, it's true. These are they that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. It's a progressive partaking of Christ through faith and obedience. We go on and we go on. The Lord said in that passage we read, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. You see, they thought they were rich. They thought they'd got beautiful clothes. They thought we've need of nothing. So they were thinking, oh, so, he says to me, let go those things you've got and take gold from me. But, hmm, if I let him have his way, I shall be poor, and I shall be naked, and I shall be dependent, and I shall be insufficient, and I... Oh, not at all. That shows how deluded and deceived we are. We are poor, and blind, and naked, and all the rest. And the Lord's really saying to you, look, let me give you gold. Let me give you gold. Come to me and buy it. I'll give it to you. You can have it. The price is experience. There's a cost. But, the, but, the, but, but it's given to you a grace, really. But the, but the price you pay is experience. But you've got to let go of all these ideas you've got of being so beautifully clothed, of being so knowledgeable, of being seeing, and all the rest of it. Just you let go of all those things. You see, faith would say, ah, oh, Faith would argue like this. Faith would say, well, I think I'm all right. But if he says he's got gold, well then, that must be better than I've got. Only when we've got the gold and let go of the others, we say, what was I hanging on to? A lot of dirty old cast iron. Painted gold. Now I've got the real thing. The overcomers are those who are, who are <clears throat> wholly identified with Christ in the fulfillment of the will of God and the realization of the, pur of the purpose of God. Now, let me say that once again. It's not just a question of you getting gold, you becoming more like the Lord, you growing up into Christ. That's not just overcoming. Overcoming is something outward, something that goes out from you. The first thing God's got to do is to get you first to see your need. For the worker with God is more important than the work he does. The servant more important than the service. But when he's got you there, then overcoming is not, aha, now I'm going to go to all the conference meetings, I'm going to read all the deeper books on spiritual life that I can possibly lay my hands on, I'm going to take down notes of every message that I think is worthwhile trying to take notes of, no. Overcoming is this, that by the laying down of your life and the readiness to sacrifice everything for him, you throw in your lot with him in what he's seeking to do. 
And that, my dear child of God, costs everything. It costs everything to really be identified with the Lord, whithersoever he goeth. Oh, if we could only go in some plan, purpose or plan that's already been marked out traditionally. But to move with him so that if he goes over there, we go with him. And he moves over there, we go with him. To be identified with him now in his purpose, that's not so easy. We don't always understand what he's doing. We don't always understand what he's heading for. Following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. To be identified in that way with him. That's why the um, uh, 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 apostle here in the beginning of this book of Revelation speaks of two things. He says, he bear witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Two things. And again in verse 9, he was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony. On the one side, the revelation of God as truth, all that he is, his word. And all that is bound up with that in ministry and much else. And the other, the testimony of Jesus. The experimental knowledge of the life of God in Christ. Union with him. Yes, more than that. It's not just a personal thing. And now we, we come to it. All the rest has been personal. Right, rightly so. Now we come to this. This testimony of Jesus is that you and I together become the bride of God, the wife of the Lamb. That we become the city of God, his eternal home or dwelling place, the abode of his glory. It's all here, isn't it? Wherever we turn. Did you notice in that wonderful message to the church at Philadelphia what an outreach there was there? It's rather wonderful, isn't it? When he says, he, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and none shall shut, and that shutteth and none openeth, I know thy works. That's outreach. Behold, I set before thee a door open. Now, I'm not only just thinking of evangelism. When I speak of outreach, I mean going right out to the Lord and identification with him in his great purpose. From eternity to eternity. Here you've got it, listen. I know thy works, behold, I've set before thee a door open which none can shut. That thou hast a little part, and didst keep my word. And didst not deny my name. And a little further down, verse 10, because thou didst keep the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, here's an outreach. This isn't just being turned in my sanctification, my increase, my uh, rooting and grounding. This is something which has turned you out so that you're facing him, what his purpose is. Now, what can we say then? We can say this. It is the fellowship of the church concretely expressed in time and place which is the sphere in which we overcome.
That is, let me put this qualification, that is normally, according to God's mind. Now, God always goes by the normal. And then he has to, he adjusts to the abnormal. <laughs> the fact that today, I suppose 90% of the world is abnormal in this matter makes no difference to God. He does not alter what he calls normality. And his, the normality of it is this. The sphere for overcoming is the church concretely expressed. That's not all up there. It's concretely expressed in time and place. There our overcoming is proved and attested. There is no more acid test. Oh my, we can get away with thinking that we're overcoming rather well on our own. Or if we're just units of a congregation. But believe me, there is no more acid test for overcoming than the sphere of the church concretely expressed. My, the church is not polite. Tears down a facade within no time. Sometimes I wish myself that I was in some other setup sometimes where we could all sort of be at a distance. <laughs> One could view the congregation from a pulpit <laughs> and only see people via one's secretary by appointment. My, how easy it would be, but no, not the church. The church tears down every facade. You're left so that people can gaze into your heart and see you for what you are. See you for what you are. If they want to disrespect you, they can. If they want to respect you, again. Now, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about all of us. The garrulous are soon found out to be garrulous. The long-winded are soon found out to be long-winded. The boring are soon found out to be boring. The hypochondriacs are soon found out to be hypochondriacs. Oh, the church is no respecter. Why is that? Artificiality, superficiality, mixture, it's all showing up in the church. Sometimes people say two things. They say, first of all, you'll never get the ideal church. Well, that's absolutely true. But then the next moment, we're blamed for allowing things to happen. Now then, let's get clear on this. The church is the place where things are often not only allowed to happen, but are drawn out by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> so where there's mixture, it comes out, it bubbling out into the open. And everyone's upside down, says, now what's this, what's this? And after a while, people become clear. That's mixture. Now that's when it's the church. Now, you see, that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19, it says this very extraordinary word, it says, For there must be also factions among you, that they that are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, this word factions is the most interesting word. It means parties. Or, in your authorised version, it translates heresies. But the word really means parties, or factions, or groupings. And the real idea is self-willed opinion leading to the formation of factions. That's the idea. Now, the, the Apostle Paul says, having already stated, then let there be no division amongst you. There's only one Christ. There's only one name. Let there be nothing else among you. Then the very next moment, he says, there must be factions amongst you. Now, 
How do you solve that? Now, this same word faction is the word that we get in Acts for the sect of the Pharisees, the sect of the Sadducees. And we've even told Paul, says, they call us a sect. The sect of the Nazarenes. See? Now, that's very interesting because it really what the Lord is really saying is, now, I'm very careful here, but what the Lord is really saying is, is there must be denominations. That's putting it on the most general scale. There must be factions. Why? That those who are going to overcome may be made manifest. Are you going to be mixed up? Are you going to compromise? When you've seen something, are you going to go back on it and say, well, what does it matter? What does it matter? Everything's so abnormal in the days we live. No. The approved of God. Only God knows that. The approved of God may be made manifest among them. That's why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church, the house of God, the church is the bulwark of truth, or the ground and pillar of truth. In other words, you come onto that ground, let God start to do that work of Christ in us all, we stay together, and everything that's false is shown up to be false. And my, that's why sometimes we go through such a rough time, don't we? There's such a lot of falsity. Why, it's in me, it's in you, it's being shown up all the time. Well, thank God for it. The Lord's boiling the scum to the surface. That's all. Nothing more. Throwing out the bits and pieces that are not going to thing, that are not going to make the suit. He's, he's, he's doing a great work. Well, thank God for that. But may I, and I am, look, the time's completely gone, but may I just say that there is, in fact, more than just that. Isn't it interesting that in Ephesians 3, verse 10, it says that to the intent that now the principalities and powers might be made known them. <coughs> the manifold wisdom of God through the church. Now. Not then. Now. In other words, in this room, with us little group, the place is packed, if we could only see it, with a far greater congregation. They're all there, if we could only see them, like Elisha's servant had our eyes open, we'd see them all around. And they're having a little lesson and the Lord is saying, you see so-and-so? You see the day she's had? Did you hear what she said before this meeting? No one else knew, but you saw, didn't you, all of you? You heard what she said? She said, Lord, you are my life. Look at her. Now, I, I've allowed her to have a rough time. If you want to ask, here are the evil spirits that have been giving her a rough time today. They're all here. Oh, yes. They're all being instructed. That's why so often sisters wear something on the head, isn't it? Because of the angels. It's not that they're just looking over the balustrade and heading down. They're here. We, none of us know why, but it is because of the angels. Some kind of instruction going on. Something that's to do with invisible forces. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to leave this matter of overcoming the old. We should be here all night. As I say, it goes much farther than that. Maybe we should have a, one more evening on it. 
although overcoming is an individual matter, it has something to do with the building up of the body of Christ, something to do with the preparation of the bride for the Lamb, something to do with the fellowship of the saints, something to do with the construction of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Overcoming is related to it. We can't overcome a mass. If only we could, if we could all hide in one another, and one or two strong ones could give a heave, and we all overcame. But I'm afraid that is not overcoming. God is so faithful on this. No, you have got to overcome personally, I have to overcome personally, but in the context of the corporate. And its object is that one day, you and I, may be the bride of the Lamb. May God give us great grace as we have uh, sung, faith is the victory. May that really be so. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we do commit this to Thee. No doubt there are some things we don't understand, some things that are not clear to us. But Lord, we do praise Thee that Thou hast promised that the Spirit of Truth Himself will lead us into all truth. And we pray for inquiring hearts, Lord, hearts that will seek Thee and search out this matter before Thee, in dependence upon Thy Holy Spirit. Lord, our prayer is that we all might be overcomers. Wilt thou show to each one of us the areas in our lives where there is need of further work? Where there is darkness or blindness, Lord, shine in, we pray. And our prayer, Lord, is that that light that thou art wanting to shine in this dark town, this dark borough, this dark land and nation, may shine never so brightly, we pray that, Lord, somehow, oh, if it could please thee, that light may blaze more and more until thy coming. What a wonderful thing that would be, Lord, if right up to thy coming we could be ablaze with the fire of God. Oh, Lord, we believe it's possible. There's nothing impossible to, with thee. And therefore, together, Lord, we commit ourselves to thy gracious dealing. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.